just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. This is Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode of The Lost Debate Show. I thought I was not going to be recording a podcast today. I'm actually sitting in LaGuardia Airport in a telephone booth. But uh, as things are, it's another week, and it is another Trump indictment. So I'm going to break down those charges and give you five big takeaways from those. And then we have a wonderful voicemail from a listener about Oregon and that decriminalization effort. But let's start with this this Trump case. My assumption is that you know a bit about what's going on here, but I'm going to give you five takeaways on this. One, about the scope of the charges. Two, about the unique threat of this particular case to Trump. Three, about the timing of it all. Uh, four, about the statute at issue and what makes that unique. And five, uh, about the scope of defendants, the collection of defendants that we have. So let's start with the scope of the charges. So uh, this indictment, which is a really, really long document, uh, documents that there are eight ways the defendants were accused of obstructing the election um, by lying to the Georgia state legislature, lying to state officials, creating fake pro-Trump electors, harassing election workers, soliciting Justice Department officials, soliciting Vice President Mike Pence, breaching voting machines, and engaging in a cover-up. This indictment alleges 161 separate actions that prosecutors say were taken to further the criminal conspiracy. Uh, and this includes things like Giuliani giving false testimony about election fraud to Georgia lawmakers in early December, uh, Trump's telephone call to the Georgia Secretary of State Raffsenberger in early January, urging him to find 12,000 votes. We played that clip the other day on the show. That actually, that clip uh, is allegedly what even started this investigation. And so these are t 41 counts across all defendants, uh, which I'll get to. It's a pretty big collection of defendants. But uh, 22 of those counts, so uh, the majority of accounts relate to forgery or false documents and statements. Uh, eight counts relating to soliciting or impersonating public officers, three counts related to influencing witnesses, three counts related to election fraud and defrauding the state, three counts related to computer tampering, one count related to racketeering, one count related to perjury. And what I think is going to be interesting about this case, among many, many other things, is that these are very tangible, tactile uh, things to prove. They're not very theoretical, although some of this case is going to be uh, theoretical and a, and a little bit uh, loose, which I'll get to. But uh, the elements of this conspiracy involve like real people, real voting machines, machines, real documents. So um, there was a breach of voting machines allegedly in Coffee County. There was an attempt to intimidate Ruby Freeman, who's an election worker in Fulton County. Uh, there were alleged lies to Georgia officials and attempts to enlist them in the subversion of the election. And there was the creation of the false slate of electors to be submitted to the Electoral College. And so there are there are tangible things, tangible people, tangible machines, tangible documents that are going to be at issue in this case. And the big question, which we'll get to, is how much of this can they tie to Trump? How much of this can they tie to other people? My sense is for certain there are going to be some people who are going to be um, found guilty here, given the scope of everything going on. But the question, as with all things related to Trump and charges against him, is what did Trump know? What can they lay at his doorstep? And, and this is going to be a particularly interesting version of that story, which we'll get to. The second thing here to keep in mind is that this is a state case, and it is a unique threat to Trump for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one 
is that the lawyers in this case, so Willis, uh, the district attorney Willis, doesn't report to the president. So if Donald Trump wins the election, he wouldn't be able to shut down this investigation. But the second thing that's really fascinating here is that you can't pardon uh, at the federal level for a state crime. And what's interesting is it's very hard even in the state of Georgia to pardon somebody. So unlike in other states such as New York, my state, um, clemency isn't up to the governor. Uh, and at least not directly. So under the state constitution, there's a board of pardons and paroles with five members who are appointed by the governor and confirmed by the state Senate. These uh, officials are given staggered seven-year terms. And so, and this current board was appointed by a mix of Kemp and his predecessors. And even, even more troubling for Trump is even uh, if the board were inclined and they wanted to pardon Trump, uh, the pardon application is pretty specific uh, in closing that door for Trump, at least in the near term. It says people convicted of crimes will be considered only if the applicant has completed his or her full sentence obligation, including serving any probated sentence and paying any fine and has been free of supervision uh, and or criminal involvement for at least five consecutive years thereafter, as well as five consecutive years immediately prior to applying. And the form also says that the applicants cannot have any pending charges. And we all know that is going to be trouble for Trump. So uh, this case is the most threatening case by far to Trump, both because of the scope of it, but also because uh, of the fact that it is protected in some ways from the politics. Uh, now, the third part of this is the timing. So, you know, interestingly and puzzlingly, uh, Willis said that the trial date is going to be, or she's pushing for a trial date in six months. Now, this is going to be a big area of contention because the Trump team is basically saying, well, why did it take you so long to even bring these charges? And they're going to say, well, it, it took you this long to bring the charges. Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to rush this. Uh, this feels like politics. And it is interesting because there are 19 defendants here in a pretty, I would say, involved indictment. Uh, so I have real questions about whether they're going to be able to bring this trial in six months. And the you know, one thing they could do is bring the trial only for Trump in six months, but that would look very political to just pick the one guy who's in the middle of an election and subject him to a trial. The The alternative and almost, you know, less thinkable, but really mind-blowing possibility here is that Trump is in, you know, is subject to a criminal trial while he's president. And this is state charges. I mean, there's a whole thorny area there that we can dive into in future episodes. Uh, the fourth part of this uh, that's really interesting, is the statute itself that's at issue here. So um, Willis is drawing upon uh, the state law involving criminal racketeering, uh, Georgia's racketeering statute. And racketeering is, you know, the, it's called the RICO statutes, which we have all over the country. And uh, this is a statute that allows prosecutors to bundle together crimes committed by different people if they're perceived to be in support of a common object objective. And so this is largely used, it was really pioneered to be used against the mafia. And if you want to get a deep dive into this, is really good docu-series on Netflix called Fear City, which is all about kind of how uh, prosecutors trying to go after the mafia uh, basically rediscovered this statute in part thanks to a, a law professor up in Cornell. 
and uh, and were able basically to go after mafia dons who often weren't in on the conversations that like they were you know weren't in on all the conversations about all the crimes, but they were able to tie them to the overall conspiracy. And a lot of people went to prison for that kind of stuff. Uh, Trump is basically going to be treated as the mafia don here, and you better believe that this RICO statute, the debate over RICO statute, which has actually been going on for decades about whether it's constitutional or not, there's there's been all sorts of jurisprudence around this. Uh, you better believe that this is going to be litigated now. Um, I, w- I would imagine that the right wing media and Republican figures are going to have a lot to say about that. And I can imagine other people within the criminal justice system, defense attorney, defense bar, will take this opportunity to really you know, ignite a debate over whether these criminal racketeering statutes are actually right. The true irony here is one of the people charged under this criminal racketeering statute is Rudolph Giuliani. Why is that fascinating? Because he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York when they were the ones pioneering the use of the RICO statute against the mafia. I know this because I grew up in Staten Island, New York, where people like Sammy Gravano and all these people uh, were um, you know, either pressured under the RICO statute. In that case, uh, Gravano flipped on Gotti, uh, who, you know, among other things, was subject to the RICO statute. So Giuliani was basically a pioneer of this RICO statute. Now he's being charged under it, which is mind-blowing. And for those of us who grew up in New York City in the 80s and 90s, like this turn for Giuliani, I mean, there obviously could be a movie. There have been books already written about it. Um, it is it is truly tragic uh, and then uh, there's the question of the collection of defendants here, which is this is a pretty wide scope of defendants. This includes Mark Meadows, who is uh, the White House chief of staff at the time. And uh, he wasn't really featured prominently in Jack Smith's uh, uh existing indictments. He, Smith could always go after Meadows eventually. Um, and he wasn't uh, identifiable as one of the six unindicted co-conspiracies in that case. But he faces two charges, um, one that he attended meetings where Trump allegedly brought up lies about election fraud. Uh, and Meadows also allegedly worked to arrange Trump's calls with state officials like Raffsenberger to further the efforts, including to pressure Raffsenberger. Um, and there was allegedly a meeting in which Trump and Meadows uh, asked Trump aide John McEntee to prepare a memo on how to disrupt or delay Congress's January 6th vote counting. So that Meadows is in the crosshairs, Giuliani's in the crosshairs. They allege that this, you know, alleged cr- criminal conspiracy wasn't just specific to Georgia, but that it spanned many states. So you can imagine that there could be uh, other states who follow suit here. Um, that's something to keep an eye on. Now, in the end, we'll have to do future segments on this, but. We are in this very unstable place right now where we have state officials charging uh, the former president of the United States. He's He's been charged four times uh, this year, uh, or at least for four different sets of charges, if you don't count the superseding indictment. And there could be more to come. And, uh, you know, although I was very skeptical of the, the Bragg indictment and I felt that was an abusive process, uh, one that I think is, has continued to taint this uh, entire conversation about Trump ever since. Um, this one, I think, uh, is uh, is somewhere in between Bragg and the document retention case, which I feel like is the most straightforward and most damning to Trump in terms of just like, uh, you know, like in a, in a in a sensible world, that one, like he's he's dead to rights on that one. Uh, but for reasons that we've talked about on the podcast, the judge, the potential jury, 
I have major questions about that and the fact that he's running for president and he could potentially take over the Department of Justice who's bringing that charges against him and he has to pardon power if he wins that election. So even though those charges are, I think, the most uh, locked down for Trump, this one in the in the Jack Smith January 6th uh, election subversion uh, charges are, I think, the most important conversation we can have about our democracy. And so I, I, I want to reserve judgment to say too much about this still, but um, I do want to talk a little bit about the Trump defenses here that they've already aired. One is, as I've already mentioned, which is why did Willis take so long? Um, I think this is mixed with some other abusive process arguments that they're making. Like there was some document that showed up on the docket last night um, with, with the charges on it that I think people are saying, well, this was cooked up. I think a prosecutor would say, well, of course, we've drafted um, the charging document before we take it to the grand jury and there was a slip up and it was sent. I don't know. I don't know enough about criminal law. I'm sure that will be litigated in the public uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, the second is the same defense they gave against the Jack Smith charges related to the election subversion, which is his First Amendment. This is criminalizing politics. Uh, and the related third argument is that that you know state officials are now going to go after Democrats, which is something we brought up during the Bragg uh, indictment. And although I think Trump like there's there's a good case here to be made that he broke some laws. I, I, I think it has to like he's he's entitled to a trial on this. And I actually do think this is going to be a really important trial where we separate out what's politics and, you know, potentially immoral politics and what's illegal. Uh, and I think that's a really important conversation for the American people and for uh, the criminal justice system to really give this uh, enough space, enough process. And given that you know, no matter what you feel about Trump. Like he deserves a day in court like anybody else on this charge and anything else, because we can't uh, we can't just skip process here. We can't rush things through. And as much as a lot of people are anxious to have everything resolved by the election, it's really important that we don't create one set of rules for Trump and one set of rules for everybody else. Uh, and I know that's like an irony because a lot of people feel like he's getting favorable treatment, et cetera. But. Uh, I do think trying to rush this thing through in six months, uh, unless, I mean, somebody could make a case that this is just how things are done, and I, and I certainly would take a look at that evidence. It just feels really fast for the scope of the charges, for the amount of people involved. Uh, but Willis could speak to that, I'm sure. So uh, bottom line, this is a huge deal, this case. Uh, this is by far, I think, the most threatening to Trump. And this is something that I think we're going to keep coming back to. And look, listeners, I know you're probably like, well, you know, we want to talk about other things other than the uh, Trump indictments. And for sure, we'll be doing that. Obviously, this Trump set of indictments is one of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing happening in our country right now, um, as, at least as it relates to the election that's coming up. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the reasons why this is a special episode and one of the reasons why we um, why I wanted to drop this today so it doesn't crowd out other important conversations that we want to have in the weeks to come. Uh, I'm going to leave you today with a, uh, a voicemail from uh, a friend of mine and listener, Sadie Durant, uh, who, uh, if you want to listen to her in a totally different context, you can go to Sweat the Technique, which we had a whole uh, interview with Sadie, who was a Cirque du Soleil performer, who runs an incredible fitness community and, and camp called Power Monkey Fitness Camp. I interviewed her all about that and why adults should go to camp, etc. You can go listen to that on Sweat the Technique. But Sadie lives in Portland uh, and had both something to say about how we pronounce the state name, but most importantly about what's happening on the ground with the decriminalization efforts. Uh, I'll leave you with this voicemail.
Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hi, Lost Debate. This is Sadie here, your local Oregonian listener. Had to call and clear this up. It's not Oregon. It's Oregon. So I wanted to call and give a little perspective on why Oregonians are wanting to go back. I'd say the majority of Oregonians want to go back to recriminalizing hardcore drugs um, because ultimately it's just created this whole host of other problems um, where decriminalizing has failed to solve a local problem, instead just creating a major drug culture here. Uh, Last few years has been a total roller coaster. And unfortunately, there's just ill-timed coinciding with the pandemic, a lot going on all at once. And the businesses downtown just really took the brunt of it. They're finally bouncing back, which is great to see. Uh, At the same time, there's still people openly doing fentanyl in the streets, and it's an issue of public safety. Um, The Times article you guys shared with that illustrated was that uh, Measure 110, it's just turning out to be not as effective as it was intended to be. Unfortunately, where these $100 tickets are just not cutting it to provide immediate resources or accountability to the people who are being issued these tickets if they're using in public. Another data set you guys brought up, the increasing number of overdoses, that's important. Another one to consider is the increased number of overall homeless, which is up 23%. So it's like 3,300 people in the last couple of years, according to the Oregonian. Um, But the one that I think is getting overlooked and maybe hard to get accurate data on, but is actually just increasing number of people coming to Oregon from out of state moving here in the last couple of years. So um, I know there's been comparisons to Oregon and Portugal, which is just not a fair comparison because Oregon is the only state in the nation to decriminalize. So it's just created this influx of people flocking here to live on the streets. And now we're dealing with this national crisis on a very local level. Um, and then at the same time, rolling it back could have a whole other host of issues where we have a lack of public defenders and people sitting in jail without representation. So criminalizing it doesn't seem to be the right answer either. So it's a mess. (laughs) doesn't feel like there's any right answers here. Um, But anyway, thanks for keeping us in the national spotlight. And honestly, please come visit and help support our businesses. We really appreciate getting our city thriving again. It's beautiful. Come visit. Thanks, guys. Love, love, love the show. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I am heading to Maine. I am traveling uh, and will be a little wonky uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, But I was glad I got this in. make sure to uh rate review and subscribe this spot to this podcast you know share the news with your friends like well you know this is breaking news so this is a good opportunity to put this in front of friends who may want to know what's going on with the trump indictment uh and we'll uh we'll be back on thursday with a special episode and and then we'll talk to you next week thank you very much everybody